You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are really glad that you're here with us. So some of you know this, that we do a marriage retreat every year as a church here at Calvary. And one of the things that's fun about doing these events is, you know, there's always other groups. You know, we don't block out the entire hotel. So there's usually some other groups doing other things. And it's always very interesting. Like, so there's this, you know, Christian marriage conference and then something else going on. And well, one year we were doing our marriage retreat. And then on the same floor, there was another ballroom where someone else was doing an event. And this event, it was a Jewish speed dating event that was happening right next to ours. And let me tell you something. These folks were single and ready to mingle. And uh, <clears throat> now, because it was a Jewish group that was in a hotel, uh, what they did was the hotel took one of the elevators, because it was Friday night, and they, took, they made one of the elevators a Sabbath elevator. Now, if you're not aware of what that is, a Sabbath elevator is an elevator that the doors open automatically, and then it stops on every floor, so that, once again, if you're part of the Jewish tradition, you don't want to press a button on the Sabbath, because that would be a Sabbath violation. And so, anyway, <clears throat> um, without realizing it, we, my wife and I are down in the ballroom just before our event is about to get started, but we're there doing stuff. And so then we say, hey, let's go back up to the room. We'll get changed and then we'll come back down. So we go into the elevator, not realizing it's the Sabbath elevator. And so right before the door closes, what has to be close to 15 young Jewish men walk into the elevator and then it kind of splits. My wife's on one side of the elevator. I'm on the other side. And then there's this whole bunch of guys that are part of this Jewish speed dating group that are there as well. And so my wife, being the incredibly nice person that she is, says to everyone in the elevator, Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and uh, which if you're not aware, means peace on the Sabbath. Well, that being said, every guy on that elevator, they now turn towards her. And I, you don't need to be a mind reader to know what they were thinking. And they're thinking, who is this shiksa? And uh, you know, what a how many of you know what a shiksa is? Okay, if you don't know, it's a Yiddish word that means a hot Gentile woman. And so if you're not aware, so they're like, who is this hot Gentile woman who has given us the traditional Sabbath greeting? And so the guys start talking to her and my wife is just being friendly. You know, she has no idea what she's doing to these guys. And, uh, and she's just, you know, she's talking about she's been to Israel and the hotel. They had a Sabbath elevator when she was in Jerusalem. And these guys are falling all over themselves, asking questions about her life. What do you like and not like? What's your favorite time of year for a wedding? And um, so anyway, they're... And I'm, and I'm trying, I'm on the other side. I'm trying to insert myself into this conversation and it's not working. And by the way, it, remember, this is going on forever because the elevator is stopping on every floor and there's no room for anybody else. And so they say, sorry, you got to come back. So nonetheless, we finally get to our floor, which apparently I'm staying on like floor 80 or something because it took forever. And then I, we get to our floor and I just reach over and I grab my wife's hand. I'm like, this is the Gentile floor. We have to go. And so, and I get us out of there because I don't know what would have happened if we had stayed there any longer. And, and, and I appreciate those guys recognizing the obvious, 
that my wife is strikingly beautiful and that she's hotter than any girl that was part of that meat market. And uh, so anyway, but, and I was trying, and I'm trying to talk while we were on the elevator. I'm like, hey, she's not for you. She's taken. And they were not even hearing it. Their hearts just kept pounding even louder every time my wife would say something else in Hebrew. And it was, anyway. And listen, and I get it. I get it. They're all looking for love because they all want to be happy. And, and the truth is, we, everybody wants to be happy. And, and we all go about looking for happiness in different places, right? We look for it in relationships, obviously. We look for it sometimes in being successful. We'll look for it in experiences. Sometimes we look for it in stuff. And what happens is, is that most people don't find it. A, a study from the University of Chicago that was done about a year ago showed that only 14% of people in America consider themselves very happy. And everybody else has just varying degrees of miserable. And, and so, and, and, it, and once again, and the reason is, it's not because they don't want it enough. It's the problem is, is that most of us don't find happiness because we don't really understand what, where happiness comes from and that it, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, that sometimes happiness just comes and goes based on a whole bunch of factors. That joy, on the other hand, is something that's internal, that's something that can stay with us despite circumstances. And now, listen, Jesus, and I'm telling you all of this because Jesus is about to open the greatest sermon that's ever been given. And the people that he's, been, that he's going to be speaking to are struggling. The people that he's speaking to are overworked, they're overtaxed, and they are tired. And I know none of us can relate to any of those things. And, but here's the thing, is that Jesus opens by explaining how people can be happy or literally how people can be blessed no matter the circumstance or situation. So let me set the scene for you if I can. People are traveling in every direction to come and see Jesus. Crowds of people that have traveled for miles walking. They want to hear him. They want to see him. They want the, those that they love and care about that are sick to be healed by him. And so what I want to do is read a passage that I skipped last week at the very end of chapter four, which kind of sets up where we begin in chapter five. And you'll see it up on the screen. It says this, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him uh, all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed, epileptics and uh, paralytics. And he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now, listen, I want you to notice the kind of a little bit of geography that Matthew is giving to us. He's saying Galilee and Decapolis, those are all people coming from the north. Jerusalem and Judea are all people coming from the south. People from, Jordan, uh, from beyond the Jordan, those are people that were coming from the east. People were coming from everywhere to hear Jesus. And you say, well, what about people from the west? Well, remember, Jerusalem... To the only thing to the West is the Mediterranean Sea. So unless the fish wanted to hear the sermon, they're coming from everywhere else. But people are coming from everywhere. And so Jesus is finding a place. There's thousands of people. So there's this area in Galilee where most people believe that the Sermon on the Mount took place. It's a hill that's now called the Mount of Beatitudes. And it's there that Jesus is going to talk to them. And, and you've got to understand this message that Jesus is going to give. And this is really important, is that what Jesus is going to be outlining over and over and over again, is that the point of the sermon is that there's two possible ways to live. Remember, Jesus is talking to believers, 
right? Everyone in the crowd believed God. Everyone in the crowd was Jewish. Everyone in the crowd accepted the law of Moses as their authority. But what he does over and over again is he says, hey, there's two roads. There's a narrow road and there's a broad road. There's two houses, one that's built on the rock and the other that's built on sand. There's two ways you can pray. You can make a show of it or you can go into your, your closet, right? There's two ways to give. You can make a show of it or you can not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. There's two ways to fast. You can actually let everybody know you're fasting or you can do it in secret. You can, there's trees that bear good fruit and there's trees that bear bad fruit. So over and over again, Jesus is giving us this illustration. There's two possible ways to live. And the one way is that you can look very spiritual and very holy and make it seem like you have everything together when in reality you're completely lost and far from God. Or you can stop putting on a show for people and live an authentic and real life and accept that you aren't perfect and that you really need God. And see, if we don't have the understand this as the undergirding of the sermon, we'll never understand what it is that Jesus is saying over and over and over again. You see, but if we will grab hold to what it is that Jesus is teaching us, we can have joy no matter what the circumstance and live a life that is absolutely blessed. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's four things that we're going to look at. I don't know why I held up three fingers. There's four things that we're going to look at. <laughs> the four of them, but three are good. Um, so the, the one is iffy. And so, no, four things we're going to look at. And the first is this, if you're a note taker, is that happy people see themselves as they really are. And I want you to notice just culturally what happens here. Jesus sits and begins to teach. That's what was common in that culture. And I'll be honest, that's my preference. Because in, in that culture, the teacher would sit and everybody else would stand. Can you imagine how much money we'd save on chairs if we did that? They'd only need to buy one chair. So anyway, but we are where we are. So enjoy. But anyway, but he opens the sermon. And listen, doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, where you are, you're young, you're old, you're married, you're single. He starts talking about something that everyone could relate to, and that is how to be happy. Now, these eight statements at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are called the Beatitudes. And that phrase comes from a, the Latin word for this, which is beatus, which means happy or literally, uh, oh, how happy is. And the Greek word for when he says blessed are, and he goes through, the Greek word is this word makarias. And people in the first century were a lot like us. They thought of, when they thought about living the good life or living a happy life, they thought about living on an island because there was a series of islands in the Mediterranean by the, uh, by Cyprus that were considered to be paradise. And so they had this, they had created this word in the culture, in the Greek language, to describe paradise. And this word was makarias. And so they defined happiness as this life that was carefree and problem-free. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes is saying, I know how you can bottle up the island life, and I know how you can experience makarias internally every day of your life. And it's experiencing blessing in life that's not connected to circumstance. And this is so important for us because if we think that joy and happiness are only connected to our circumstances and everything being good, we are going to be extremely unhappy people. In fact, most of us who have been around for a while, and especially those of us who may have a little bit of gray, even if you diet, um, 
that here's what we know. We know something very counterintuitive. We know that sometimes the deep joy that we experience now is connected to deep pain that we experienced in the past. Isn't that strange? And yet we know it's totally true. And that we wouldn't want to go through it again, and we certainly wouldn't wish it on anyone, but those seasons in the valley that we were in, those difficult seasons are what prepared us to enjoy the season on the mountaintop. Because sometimes the difficulty brings something out of us that we didn't know was there, or sometimes it's God working into us something that wasn't there so that we can experience the mountaintop blessing later. Now, um, I try to walk about two to three miles a day. That's typically my, my rhythm. And by the way, I used to not see anyone. And then I mentioned a few weeks ago, oh, I like to walk two or three miles a day. And now I see Calvary people on the road everywhere. And I see people are honking their horns and, and waving, and I so appreciate it. But a couple people are almost getting into accidents trying to say hi. I just want you to know this. I see you, and I love you. But you got to watch the road. All right? So we'll, we'll do that. And, uh, and by the way, some of you freaked me out. I'm listening to music. Honk! And I just, you know, anyway, it's like, it was terrifying. And uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, well done uh, in being in like creep mode, you know, creeping up. So it was pretty good. So, but anyway, so I try to walk a couple miles a day. Well, this is a couple of years ago when I was, we lived in our old house and in our old neighborhood, we lived on a circle that was about three quarters of a mile. So I try to do three or four laps every day. So I had just uh, started walking. I was on the phone with a friend of mine and I'm about four or five houses down from my house when as I'm just kind of walking, minding my own business, talking to my friend, these three geese come out from the side of, from the side of my, my neighbor's house. And they come out and they are upset because apparently I stole their wallet. I don't know what I did. They were not happy with me. And so they come out and they are screaming, you know, ah, Aflac, whatever it is those guys say. <laughs> and so, and I don't know if you know this, and this is what I learned about geese, is that geese, when they're like this, they're fine. When they kind of do this little motion, they, kinda, they, go, they go into, uh, you know, attack mode. When their head goes down, they're like, oh, it's on. And so, and, and I'm like, hey, man, I don't want any part of this. So I start backing up. And they're screaming at me. And then they're kind of, now they start flapping their wings. And so I start backing up a little bit faster. And they start going, uh, going a little harder. Well, I, you know, and just like the song, if you remember the song by Christopher Cross, Run Like the Wind, that's exactly what I did. And so I start running, and then I'm looking back on these guys. They are like, and they come out, and one is in the front, the other two, they're in a full-on attack formation. Uh, and so now, and I start running, and, and, I, and I, I escaped them. And, um, and anyway, and I can only imagine my, my neighbors, they're like, look at that man. He looks so weird, being attacked by three, de- three ducks. And it's like, they're geese, and they're demon-possessed. And so anyway, so I get home finally, and I, 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 I do some research, and I'm like, dude, how fast were these guys? I don't know if you know this. Geese can fly up to 40 miles an hour. I don't know if you knew that. You know what that means? That means I can run 41 <laughs> miles an hour. I, I'm like the Usain Bolt of pastors. I don't know if you knew that, but it's true. So anyway, now, so after that moment, every time I would go walking, I would bring a weapon. And so whether it was like a piece of a tree that had fallen or what happened was we had a broom that had broken and my wife's going to throw it away. I'm like, oh, leave it. I'm going to use it for something. And so, and I would walk around with this broom that the, the, the broom part was broken. It was just a staff. I was like the Mandalorian walking around my neighborhood. So this is the way. 
And so anyway, I'm, 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 I'm walking through. And so now I'm doing my laps. I'm finally getting to my house. And, uh, and I've just got, you know, the, the thing. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, this is, once again, this is like a week later. Two geese come from the side of my, it's like they were waiting to jump me. And they come from the side of my house, full attack mode, ready. And I was like, you want this? Like now I wasn't backing down. Oh, it's on. And I start swinging the thing and I start screaming out. I'm like, come on, devil. And so anyway, I, I don't know. I don't know what kind of demon was in those, but I was casting them out either way. And so anyway, because that happened in the Bible. I don't know if you know that, that Jesus cast a demon out of a guy and the demons are like, hey, let us go into these pigs. And they did. First incident of the Bible of deviled ham. And so uh, you like that. Feel free to use that at lunch. So, but anyway, and you know what? You know what the weird part is? I start screaming at these geese, you know, and then they're like, and they just walk away. And I'm telling, and it's like, that's it? Well, after that, we just had an understanding. It's like, this is my turf. And then eventually, uh, another geese got into it, and it was like, it's them or me. And I'm like, you know what? You can have the neighborhood I'm moving. And, uh, but here's the point, right? Is that sometimes, like, you get into a trial, a difficulty, and something comes out of you that you didn't even know was there. And when you get to the other side of it, it brings a greater joy than you thought was even possible. And that's why when Jesus says, who's blessed? Jesus says, hey, it's the poor. And now you got to understand something is that in this culture, that was, first of all, not even in this culture, in our culture, we don't really believe that. We, they, in that culture, they looked at someone who was rich, that that was obvious that they had the blessing of God on their life. And a lot of times, we, we do the same thing. In fact, it's, and, and, and this is not even just poor in the sense of like, yeah, you know, the bank account's a little thin. No, poor in the Greek language is referring to someone who is completely helpless, someone who cannot take care of themselves. And so poor in spirit is referring to someone who recognizes their own spiritual poverty, they see their, near, their need for God, and then they have just come to the end of themselves. And so when a person comes to that realization, like, why is that person blessed? The person who comes to the end of themselves and realizes their own poverty. Because when a person gets to that moment, you get to the end of yourself, right? We're doing stuff, and we think, oh, I've got this idea. I'm going to make this happen. God, yeah, sure, just kind of get in on what I'm doing. And, and, and then when it doesn't work out, you come to the end of yourself, and you realize, like, God, I don't have any more plays left. I just need you to do it. God, you just tell me what you, want me to do, what you want me to do and I'll get in it. But I've just, and you know what happens in that moment? God starts working and starts doing for you things that you could never do for yourself. That's why he says, not, is it ju- not only is it just the poor in spirit who are blessed, but he says, blessed are those who mourn because they're gonna be comforted. Why? And we know this because it's in the dark seasons of life, the difficult seasons of life, when things have not gone your way, when you've had no one to depend on except the Lord, that you have found more growth than any other time in your life. And you know, I wish it wasn't true. And, and yet we know it to be true. When you look at what are the moments, especially if you've walked with God for a while, like what are the moments in your life where have brought the most growth? If we're being real honest, the moments of difficult circumstances have usually brought the greatest amount of growth in our lives. Because you experienced God in a different way when you were in the low season. And that's what prepared you for the season on the mountaintop. And so Jesus is saying, listen, those who mourn are happy 
because they've been comforted by God and it marks them now for the things that God wants to do. And that's what he says next. Look at verse five. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. If you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you is that happy people have the right desires. Now there's two words that we need to understand for this to make sense. And that is, we need to understand what meekness is, and we need to understand this idea of what does it mean to inherit. Meekness is not a word that we use in our culture because we kind of think that meekness means weakness, and it's not. Meekness is actually power, but it's power that's under control. It's being able to have the self-control to use the power that we have and channel it in the right way. Culturally, it refers to a wild stallion that once was out of control, but now has been tamed. It's been able to now, it possesses great power, but it's, it's channeled in a productive way. Now, you've got to understand something. Jesus' listeners must have been shocked when they heard Jesus saying that the meek inherit the earth, because that's not the way the world worked. They were under the rule of Rome, and they were looking for a leader that would overthrow the Roman yoke and give them their land back. And so Jesus is saying, uh, not the powerful are going to get, no, no, the meek are going to inherit the earth. And they're saying, Jesus, I'm so, I don't know if, if you've been around for a while, but that's not how it works here. The meek don't inherit anything. The forceful take it. This is the way of the world. Rule number one, get power. Rule number two, keep it. But Jesus is borrowing an idea from Psalm 37. And it says this, it says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And you know, the challenge, the struggle for this isn't when we're powerless. The struggle is when we have the power to gain something. And Jesus is saying that it's the meek that inherit. That's the point of this beatitude is that you can try to gain something. You can try to use your power to obtain it, but the meek are the ones who inherit it. In Romans chapter eight, the apostle Paul would say this. He would say, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. That inheritance is the natural byproduct of being a child of God and being a follower of Jesus. Now, I have three kids, as um, most of you know. My youngest is 10, and, and my daughter Olivia is literally the funniest kid that I have ever known. And she has this incredible way of looking at life. She's totally hilarious. But probably about five years ago, we're sitting at the breakfast table. I had made breakfast for the kids, and we're sitting there talking. And Livy looks at me, and she says, eh, you're not my real father. <laughs> Excuse me? She says, yeah, you're not my real father. God is my father. And I'm like, okay. Liv, you have a heavenly father, that's God. You have an earthly father, that's me. She says, well, God can go to heaven and earth, so he's my heavenly father and my earthly father. Don't you read the Bible? <laughs> a little bit. Yes, I do. And I said, so if I'm not your father, then what relationship do we have? 
She says, you're an earthling. <laughs> so, <laughs> welcome to our planet. And, uh, and I say, okay, so I get up and I walk over to the kitchen. I grab this plate. And I say, well, here, yesterday I made these brownies for my children. But if you're not my child, you can't have one. And she says, is one of those brownies with fudge? Yeah, it is. She's like, come here, Dad, I love you so much. And listen, my, my daughter understood something intuitively, and that is that inherent, inheritance comes through relationship. When you are in relationship with God and walking with him, meekness becomes a matter of trust. And then we express our trust either in ourselves or in God by our ability to not force things to happen in our own strength. And by the way, when I say that, forcing things to happen, I'm not talking about doing your due diligence. I'm not talking about not putting in the effort or actively seeking God and doing the things that we're called to. What I am talking about, and most of us know the difference, I am talking about when we try to manipulate, when we try to force things to happen a certain way. Listen, we have a heavenly father who loves us and desires to do great and mighty things in our lives, but we have to trust him. And you and I have to resist the temptation to exercise power without restraint to demand our own way. Because when we do, it never works out for our benefit. And that's why when he says, when you're controlled, when you're just allowing meekness, you have power, but you have the self-control to control it. That's why this next beatitude, when he says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're going to be filled. Like Jesus says, happy are the hungry. Like, I don't know if you've been around people. That's not the way it works, right? With your children, the hungrier they get, do they get more delightful? <laughs> right? I don't think so, right? In fact, I think we have special words for people that are hungry and then they get more annoyed, right? They get hangry. It's like, I'm hungry and I'm upset. And so, and, and this is the thing, but hunger He's really talking about desire. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying that happy people have good desires and those desires get met. What desire do they have? It says that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And once again, some of these words are challenging for us because we don't use them in our culture. We don't use the word righteousness unless we put a modifier in front of it and we talk about someone being self-righteous. But righteousness is simply right conduct in relationship to God and in relationship to others. So when I hunger for things to be right between me and God, that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When you and I hunger for things to be right between us and our neighbor, that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When we hunger to do the right thing in difficult circumstances, that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When we hunger to obey God's commands, to be the men and women that God has called us to be, that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we, when we hunger and thirst for those things, Jesus says, hey, you're happy because you're going to be filled and you're going to be satisfied. So my son is almost 13 and he is at a stage. And if you have children this age in your house, you know this, you're probably experiencing the same thing. But my son is eating us out of house and home. He is in a perpetual state of hunger because he's growing. And I've been calculating if he continues to grow at the rate that he's growing, within two years, he will be 11 feet tall. And so, anyway, so, and, and I'll tell you how this works. The other night, uh, I, I stopped the store. I bought some skirt steak. I made skirt steak for dinner and salad and potatoes. I didn't have any potatoes because I can't have joy in my life. And so, anyway, but he ate the whole salad. 
He ate all of the steak. He ate all of the potatoes. Then he went back for seconds, got more steak, got more potatoes, and then ate all that. Now, there's this thing that my son does, and we have a name for it, but he will. And I don't know how he does it because it's just five of us. It's not like there's a party of 50 people. There's five of us sitting at the dining room table talking while we're having dinner. But somehow he has the ability to stand up totally unnoticed and go up and get more food. We call it silent mode where he just gets up and then he just sits. And then, so this is what happens the other night is that he eats his food and then he got up and got another plate of food and we didn't realize it until he sat down. And then we were just talking and then I look over a few minutes later and my son is eating a giant bowl of cereal. And I'm like, first of all, how did you get up? Cereal is not a silent food, right? It, it, so it's like he gets the bowl, clunk boom, put it back, put it back. And then he sits out and I, just, and I hear the, and I turn and I'm like, are you eating a bowl of cereal? And I'm like, dude, you literally just ate dinner. Truth be told, you literally just ate two dinners. You're ready to turn into a character from Lord of the Rings. And so, which that's, people don't get that. Second breakfast, hobbits have second breakfast. All right, get up to speed, people. All right. So anyway, so, and so, but he's like, dad, I'm, 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 I'm just hungry. And this is what's happening is that he's eating three meals a day. And then he's eating the three in between meals a day. And, and, but sometimes he's like, I'm just, I'm so hungry. And so he'll eat something. And then my wife will tell him like, Xander, you're not hungry. You're thirsty. Drink a glass of water. And he'll just drink a glass of water. She's like, how do you feel? And he's like, well, now I'm not thirsty, but now I'm just hungry. And she's like, well, <laughs> have another glass of water. And so anyway, I handed him a half gallon. I'm like, you know what? Just go somewhere, drink that, go to the bathroom, come see me. And, uh, and then we'll see how it goes. But there's this, just this principle, right? That whatever you feed yourself is what you will desire. This is why it's so hard to go back on your eating plan after vacation. You go on vacation and then you're like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna diet while I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation from everything. This is time for me. This is me time. I'm gonna just enjoy myself. I wanna have fun. And having fun, just eating what I want. Anyway, just kind of whatever we do. And so, and then, you know, and you're just, and then you just throw caution to the wind, right? And you're eating Oreos for breakfast. You're washing it down with chocolate milk. And then you get back and you're like, well, I guess it's protein bars and kale shakes, right? It's hard to switch back, right? Because, but once you're in the rhythm of eating well, it, you actually desire the good stuff. I mean, not kale, because that tastes like death, but, um, <laughs> but you desire the other things. And this is true spiritually as well. When you're walking with God, learning of God, you know what you find is that you desire the things of God. And listen, this is just a good barometer for your own life. If you don't desire the things of God, watch what you're feeding yourself. Watch what you're ingesting because it could be the junk food that's actually keeping you from the good spiritual food that God wants to bring into your life. And listen, all, that, all the junk, right? It's like, man, I don't really want to go to church. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to be part of a group and I don't want to learn anything. But I do want to spend hours watching cable news. Um, you know, no one has ever been. You want to know what really the secret to my happiness is? Six hours a day of cable news. Just, you know, like no one has said that. Everyone is miserable. You ever seen the hosts of cable news? Are these people happy? Even the people giving the news are miserable. Like maybe that should tip us off. That it's like maybe I don't need to hear you. 
And so, but I'm telling you, it's like hours of cable news, spending hours arguing with people on social media about total nonsense, and then watching entertainment that isn't helpful at all, that just leaves us empty. And listen, but you know what you find when you start desiring the things of God? This is the point that Jesus is making. You will be filled. And not just like, oh yeah, I'm okay, I'm satisfied. Literally, the word is fulfilled is gorged. Gorge. It's like that person in your family who's really the smartest person in your family that shows up at Thanksgiving dinner wearing sweatpants. It's just like, listen, I know what we're here to do. And I just want to do this without any resistance. And so now, if that's you, you may need to talk to somebody. But, uh, but listen, but you're full and desserts on the way. I mean, this is the, the kind of full that Jesus is talking about. And then he goes on and he says this in verse seven. He said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, or people with godly motives, for they shall see God or experience God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And if you pause there and give me your attention, third thing, that is that happy people don't carry grudges. Now, before we get into how to be merciful, let me tell you four things that mercy is not. Number one, mercy is not justifying another person's actions. And by the way, I apologize for the outline that usually I just have you fill in a couple of words. I didn't realize I was going to have you fill in like a paragraph uh, of stuff. So um, anyway, but mercy is not justifying another person's actions. When you forgive someone, you're not saying what they did was okay. You're simply letting go of the baggage that's holding you back. Here's the second thing is that mercy is not waiting on the passage of time. Whoever said, well, time heals all wounds, that person is an idiot. Uh, Because have you noticed that just the opposite is true? That some people who don't forgive and time goes on, it actually makes them angry and bitter? That it didn't heal anything. It simply, it cemented what was going on. No, but what we have found is this. Time only helps if you've forgiven. And then the passing of time will lessen the pain. Number three. Mercy is not denying your hurt. You know, whenever I, I, I see this so often, people say, oh, it's no big deal. I don't care. It doesn't matter. No, no. You see, if you won't acknowledge that it hurt you, you can't forgive it. You've got to acknowledge, and I know it takes a level of humility to say, hey, what you did hurt me. And, and listen, but when you just keep saying, oh, it's no big deal. I don't care. It doesn't matter. That can get under your skin, and like a splinter that goes unattended, it just can create infection and pain. Mercy is about deciding to forgive rather than exacting revenge. And that's why, once again, forgiveness is accepting that you were hurt and then dealing with it in a godly way. Fourth, mercy is not automatically trusting again. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you have to trust them. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. Trust is something that a person earns. So we forgive freely. As Christians, we are commanded to forgive. But people need to earn trust through wise choices and actions. And let me tell you, part of the challenge with forgiveness is that forgiveness is an unnatural reaction when we're hurt. Our our natural reaction is revenge so that they feel the way that they made us feel. But Jesus says it's the merciful ones who are blessed and happy. Why is that? Because they are reminded that they have been the recipients of mercy. They've been the recipients of grace. They've been the recipients of forgiveness. You know what happens when you realize that you have been on the receiving end of mercy, the receiving end of grace, the receiving end of forgiveness? You know what it causes? Gratitude. 
That's why the Apostle Paul would say it this way, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And the point is this, when you show mercy and compassion and forgive, it reveals something about you, that you've experienced forgiveness. And when I refuse to forgive, when I choose revenge over mercy, it's revealing something else. It reveals that we really haven't experienced mercy, but when we forgive, it breaks the cycle. When I was about nine, I was living in Somerville, Massachusetts, and I was hungry. And so I get up and I go into the cupboard and I find a package of Doritos. And so I, I didn't, I don't know why I decided I didn't want to chew that day. So what I did, what, but I still wanted the cheesy flavor. So I decided to lick all the cheese off of the Doritos and then, but what are you going to do with these chips? Because now it becomes something else. Once the cheese is off the Doritos, now it becomes a Tostito. <laughs> Be it a moist, wet Tostito. So anyway, I do that and I start putting them back in the bag. I know, relax. We're getting there. We're getting there. So, um, so I go through the entire bag and then I put them, you know, roll them up, put the little clip back on, put them back in the cupboard. And I was just, I just went on with my life and everything was fine until about an hour later when I heard my mom scream. And uh, apparently she had gotten the Dorito bag and uh, reached in and there, there was a, a level of moisture in the bag and nearly threw up when she saw saliva all over the chips. And, um, and I knew, and it's a weird thing because she had no idea who it could have been, even though it was only her and I in the house. And... Um, but she walked into my room with a Doritos bag in one hand and a belt in the other. And when I regained consciousness, um, I never did that again. Now, let's fast forward 28 years, all right? I'm 37. This is about a week and a half ago. You laughed a little too quick. And it hurt. So... So anyway, this is about, uh, well, it's been a while. So anyway, but I go into our pantry at our house. So I'm, I'm like I said, I'm 37 at the time. So it's about 11 years ago. And, uh, and I, I grab the bag of Doritos and I go to take a chip. I, I, grab, I, I go to grab a, a chip. I take a bite and they're all wet. My then three-year-old daughter, Mia, had decided to lick all the cheese off the Doritos and put them in the bag. And by the way, she had not heard this story before because I told her the story after it happened. And it just goes to show you some things slip through into the DNA, <laughs> things that you did not even expect. So when your kids do something totally insane, they're like, where did they get that? From you. There's something, they're just some of the crazy passed on. So some of it you can't control. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so she had decided, my three-year-old daughter Mia, that she was going to lick all the cheese off the Doritos and put them in the bag. And so, uh, and so what do you do, right? And so, and I just, I started laughing. And, uh, and I told Mia, hey, that's super disgusting. And let's just go ahead and throw that out and never do that again. And, 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 and the point is this, right? I, I knew what it was like to be guilty of the same thing. And listen, forgiving her of that brought me so much joy um, because, you know, it's, it's what I wanted for myself when I, when I was young. And, 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 here, and here's, here's the point, is that being a Christian means 
that we are sinners, but we have been shown great mercy. If anyone understands mercy, it should be us. And if we want to be happy, then we've got to add this phrase into the equation when we've been wronged. And here's the phrase, I've been forgiven of worse. And it's not easy, but my friends, it will set you free. And when you decide to show mercy and forgive, you are inviting joy to come into your life. All right, here's the last one, and then we're done. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, last thing I want to tell you in your notes, and that is that happy people aren't influenced by haters. There's three things that are important here to notice. First, Jesus is making a general statement to everyone listening about being persecuted. Then, secondly, in verses 11 and 12, he personalizes it because he's like, blessed are you when they persecute you, speak evil against you, and they did the prophets who were before you. Five times he uses this word you to personalize it, that it's, listen, that this is going to happen to those who are followers of Jesus. And that is what brings me to the third thing I want you to notice, that it's persecution for righteousness sake. It is difficulties that arise for being a follower of Jesus. The apostle Peter, who was in the crowd that day listening to this sermon, took this idea and ran with it in 1 Peter chapter 4, and he said it this way. You'll see it on the screen. He says, if you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, or making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs, but it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Listen, he's saying you're blessed if you suffer for the cause of being a follower of Jesus, but that doesn't mean there's a blessing. There's no blessing that comes from difficulties that arise for being a knucklehead. And so sometimes we do things and we're like, well, it's just being, that's just being a Christian. Like, no, you just did something dumb and that there's a difference. So, and, I, and I'll give you a, kind of a silly example. Um, a few years ago, our family, we went to go see Black Panther the day of release. Right, it's a fantastic movie, and uh, we were very excited to see it. Now, I have one problem. Right, uh, it was a lunchtime showing, and the movie movie theater food doesn't quite jive with my eating plan. So I had to smuggle some food into the theater. I know none of you do that, <laughs> but I do that, and it might be wrong, but I'm still going to do it. And uh, so, but I bought a bottle of water just to keep it real with the uh with the theater so i brought a salad and some almonds and then i i, I and you know and there's like hey i'll just have one bottle of water oh sure that'll be 19 dollars. like oh wow all right that's where, where in reality are we living in you know what i mean uh, and so anyway so we get to our seats the movie's about to start it's totally sold out and i mean you can hear a pin drop and i, I don't know if, if, if you've seen black panther but the movie starts very quiet and so uh so while the movie is starting um I get my lunch out. I pull my salad out. It's in this little storage business. Like, <laughs> pull the top off, and I'm watching. It's totally silent. I take my little dressing. Get my fork. Put the top on. Put it back in the bag. Then, um, now, let me just tell you something about salad philosophy. There should be a whole message on this, but I'm just going to give you the quick version. And that is, if you just put your dressing on the top, all your dressing is going to be gone in the first four bites. You have to figure out a system, create a mechanism 
that equally distributes all the dressing throughout your salad. So what I like to do, even when I'm at home, is I'll take a storage bin, I'll put my salad in there, I'll put the dressing in, and then I just shake it up like a maraca. And then, and then that, will, that will create a, a, an even distribution. So anyway, so I want you, so then I, I, get, I get the salad, I got the thing, put it in, put it up. then um, I have this, the dressing in there, then I grab the lid, put it on. Mind you, first of all, the first like 10 minutes of this movie are way too quiet. And uh, which if this were, you know, like end game or something, I think it would have been a little more exciting and no one would have noticed if stuff was exploding. But it's so quiet as to what's happening. And then, uh, so now I close it and then I, I start shaking it. Now, let me, I want you to imagine having a Tupperware container uh, filled with Legos that you're shaking. I mean, this was, it's like there was an amplifier on this. I start shaking. People are yelling. One guy starts yelling at me. People are looking. Someone starts booing uh, at, at me. And then the big dude next to me, he looks at me like, we are not doing this. And he's like, we're going to be neighbors for two hours. We're not doing that. And I'm like, and so I was like, yo, sorry about that. Anyway, I'm just... So anyway, so now I just, but it was over. I'd already shaken it. So now the movie's going still way too quiet. So, you know, <laughs> grab my fork, my napkin. No, I didn't do that, but that would have been funny. And so, so I get that. And then um, I get my, my plastic fork. And I take my first bite. It sounded like I was landing a 747 <laughs> inside that theater. And I'm telling, and then now if someone had walked up to me and just taken my salad container and beat me with it, I just can't call uh, Christian persecution. No, man, that's theater justice that was happening. And this is the point that sometimes that, that we miss too often, right? Is that we just get fed this message that if you're a Christian, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be so wonderful. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. That's not the case. In fact, it could be that, thing, that things might be a little bit worse because you're a Christian. There might be people that hate you. There might be people that discriminate against you. There might be people that avoid you. And there might be people that go out of their way to cause you problems simply because you're a Jesus follower. And that's okay. Because he says you're still going to be happier than everybody else. How is that even possible? Because the outside persecution is going to remind you that what you're doing is right and that there is a great reward waiting for you. My friends, we only feel resistance when we're swimming against the current. If we're in the flow with everybody else, life is gonna seem very easy. And that means, let me tell you how, at work, that, that means that things might get difficult. It means you may get excluded at times because you don't play their reindeer games because of your faith. That might mean that members of your family exclude you or attack you because you're a Christian. I'm telling you, this is what happened to me when I became a Christian. My, my older brother led my wife and I to Jesus when we were still dating, and we flew home from Boston uh, to Fort Lauderdale, and I got off the plane, and I had a Bible in my hand, and immediately the attacks began. And I'm from my family and from my friends when, when I became a Christian, and they were just drilling me with every possible question. Well, if Christianity is true, what about? And I'm thinking, it's like, well, I'm not really sure. I've only been a Christian for four days. I'm thinking that after two weeks, I'll know everything. But at this point, I'm still kind of in the process. I still think the book of Job is the book of Job, and it's just like the classified ads of the Bible. So I'm still learning what this is all about. And so... Anyway, and so, but, and here's the thing, and I hated it. 
I hated it because I kept thinking, I wish, I, I just think I would grow more if people were supportive. And, and, and listen, because I'd been a Christian for just four days a week, two weeks, and they were expecting me to have the answers to every issue imaginable, every objection to Christianity. And here's what I look back and realize. I look back and realize that opposition was the greatest gift that I could have been given. Because at a very early age, it taught me how to defend my faith when I was a very young Christian. And the enemy thought he was burying me, but God was actually planting me, strengthening me, clarifying my calling to teach others the things that I had learned. And my friends, the same thing is true for you. You won't see the tests as a bad thing when you look back and realize that those were the things that were strengthening you, that those were the things that were developing you, those were the things that were preparing you, those were the things that God was using to transform you. You will look on those moments and say, I didn't realize it in the moment, and I'm not even saying I want to go back to it. But I was blessed when those things happened to me because they deepened my faith and they cemented my trust. My friends, the Beatitudes are giving us a blueprint. They're showing us how to be happy beyond what the culture thinks happiness can bring or what can bring happiness. And in a world, listen, that is so angry and so judgmental and so joyless, we have the ability to be the happiest people in the world, no matter what comes our way. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that reality that you've given us the blueprint and what can bring happiness and joy in a world that has very little of either. So God, help us. Help us to follow you well. Help us to honor you. Help us to reflect you. And even if difficulty arises, help us to be faithful because you've been faithful to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.